Good morning, E3. This is Pastor Mike. So my 10-month-old daughter, Audie, is beginning the phase of her life where she starts to babble, which means that everything is Dada. I'm Dada, mom's Dada, the dog is Dada, you name it, right? It's adorable, and it's also incredibly confusing because I like to think that I'm her father. And it has reminded me that learning language is, at its core, a task of trial and error. There's always a gap between we, when we learn words and when we begin to communicate with them effectively, when we begin to use them to actually communicate what we mean. And it got me thinking about my own da-da seasons of learning and misusing language. And for me, what immediately came to mind were my middle school years, that time in my life when I was old enough to think I knew English well, and yet at the same time wanted to impress everyone at all times in everything, which is a really bad combination when it comes to learning language. You see, in practice, what it actually meant was that I was drawn to learning, misusing, and then overusing any word that made me sound remotely intelligent. Words like however, hence, consequently, accordingly, thus, thus was one of my favorites. These words sounded so smart and mature, right? So as this 13-year-old kid, I would learn them, and then I would use them over and over in all occasions, whether they fit or not. My name is Mike. I am 13, thus it follows that I henceforth, however, onomatopoeia should not have to listen in class. It was my own version of babbling or just saying dada. It was unintelligible to anyone who knew the English language correctly. And for most, what happened was the same pattern. I learned them, I overused them, I misused them, and then through trial and error, I actually came to understand them and what they actually meant. I came to understand their meaning better. And when I did that, I'd eventually stop using them constantly, and I would relegate them to their proper uses and spaces in the English language. But a few words that were in this category actually ended up living up to the magic and the weight of my youthful fascination with them. There's no better example than the holy grail of sounding intelligent in my middle school mind, the word therefore. I mean, I love the word therefore. I learned it, I misused it, I overused it. And yet, you see, as I've, as I've come to truly understand it, it's only grown in its significance to me. It hasn't faded away, it's actually become a guiding word for how I think about my world, which probably sounds pretty extra because its definition actually is pretty simple. All it means is for that reason or consequently. It is used for if-then statements about reality. If it is true that I need air to breathe, then I should breathe to live, right? Or I need air to live, therefore, I must breathe to live. And you still might ask, why is that so powerful? What's the big deal? Well, you see, what therefore does is it reminds me that all true statements about reality have a cause and effect in reality, which is important because as a human being, I have an immense capacity to claim things as being true even when they don't actually produce the effects that I say they must in my life and world. 
For example, I have had seasons of my life where I've said things like, I believe I am forgiven by God, and yet if you looked at my internal world and how I talked about myself, you would see that I still held immense shame from my past, or I withheld forgiveness from others. Or I would say, I believe that I am called to love my enemies as my Lord commands of me. And yet my actions towards the people I would call enemies reflected only resentment and hate. It goes on and on in search, generosity and being generous, being present and actually living in the moment, whatever else. Each time, there were just these moments where I claimed a belief was true without it producing what it should in the world. And to that, therefore, called me out. It said either it wasn't actually true or, more often than not, I didn't actually believe it was as true as I said I did. Therefore, grounds us in reality because true beliefs or stories have an effect on reality. And this is so important to Christianity. Depending on the translation, the English word, therefore, appears in the Bible between 400 and over a thousand times. This concept was crucial, especially for the New Testament authors and the early church. Therefore, it was baked into their understanding of faith in God and living in community together. You see it over and over. God is love, therefore love others. God has forgiven us, therefore forgive. God is merciful, therefore be merciful. God is holy, therefore be holy. Their theology, the beliefs and stories they claimed were true about God and their ethics, how they lived together in the world, were inseparable. Because for them, the truth of their story and beliefs was reflected first and foremost in how they, the church, lived as a unique community in the world. The quality of their life together was the evidence. It was the necessary therefore of the true story they claimed for themselves. And it is this idea we are going to dive into in our new series, Therefore. You see, we've spent two months now looking at spirituality on the individual level in our series, Just Be. But now we are going to shift from me to we, I to us, from the individual to the corporate, looking at this inseparable bond between our beliefs as a community and how we do life together as a community. Or for us at E3, what we call our values as a community. Values, the guardrails for life together that reflect God's character, that emerge from the Holy Spirit moving in, through, and among us, that inform how we seek to accomplish our mission together as a church. Values that help direct us in our behavior in honoring the great therefore of God's story, the how of life together in community that is inseparable from our belief in Christ's story. And to frame this exploration of our values as a church, we are going to hone in on one of the weightiest therefores in the entire Bible. A therefore that kicks off the 12th chapter of the New Testament book, Romans. And to get why it carries so much weight, we need to unpack what leads up to it. We need to know the if before the then in the book of Romans. 
You see, Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, one of the earliest missionaries of the church, who at the time of writing Romans has been going about growing churches around the ancient world for over 25 years, which means he spent decades thinking about unpacking, unraveling, teaching, and passing along this story of Jesus Christ. And he writes this letter to a church in the city of Rome. That's where the name comes from. One of these churches in the New Testament that we actually don't know a ton about, but we do know that it was uniquely divided. You see, the church in Rome had begun as a community of mostly Jewish Christians. But in the 40s ADs, the Jews were actually expelled from Rome by the emperor of Rome, making the church almost entirely Gentile or non-Jewish overnight. And in Romans, what we find is that the Jewish Christians have finally been allowed to return to Rome after the emperor died. And they're returning to a community that is hardly recognizable anymore. A community full of and led by the very kinds of people that drove them out of the city in the first place. The Gentiles and the pagans. And we find Paul writing to this community that in these schisms, in conflicts, must now figure out how to live, heal, and move forward together in unity as one church into the future. And these currents underneath the surface shape Romans as a book. For the first 11 chapters, Paul relies on his decades of unraveling Christ's story and his experience of teaching that story to lay out a thesis on the whole biblical narrative to this divided community. From the beginning of the Bible to the present moment, from creation to the fall, from Abraham to Israel, he lays out the story of God's rescue plan that comprises the Old Testament narrative. This story of God covenanting and forming a relationship with human beings and the nation of Israel to reshape them as conduits for his work to rescue his world and make right all that had gone wrong in creation. This whole story building to this culmination point in history when God himself entered the world as a human being to meet us human beings where we are at and to show us the way home, back to him. The story that Paul calls the gospel or good news story of Jesus Christ's birth, life, ministry, death, and resurrection. A story that for Paul changed everything. You see, for Paul, it changed what kingdom he lived in. He no longer lived in the Roman kingdom or the kingdoms of this world, but he now saw himself as living in the kingdom of God under the true lordship of Jesus Christ. It changed how he understood evil, death, sin, because through resurrection, God showed him that they no longer held power over this world, that they would not get the last word in his story on his world or for Paul himself. It changed how he saw the world itself, that Christ's resurrection in light of the Old Testament story meant that God was bringing new creation, exploding from the tomb into the world, the first step towards God resurrecting and making new all it changed how he understood God's people. See, for Paul, Jesus' redemptive work now applied to and welcomed all who sought Christ in this experience of resurrection life. It brought anyone who came into the kingdom of God, who sought the lordship of Christ into the people of God 
which meant Jew and Gentile alike, now comprised the, uh, the, the kingdom of God. Over 11 chapters, Paul says this is the gospel and what it means. And right as he crescendos to this climactic moment, he slams us with that all-important word, therefore. And the entire letter shifts. It is one of the most heavy therefores you're ever going to read in the Bible. All the lofty theological arguments give way to the practical how the church exists in the world. He moves from the if, the story he's laid out, to the then, what it must produce in the world if it's a true story. This community under Christ's lordship that's diverse and lives together in a new, radical way as a pocket of new creation here and now in the world. The church, the body of Christ, the necessary therefore of the Christ story, according to Paul. And what follows in chapter 12 is truly a masterpiece. It is one of the heaviest and coolest and most profound chapters in the New Testament. Paul begins in verse 1. He writes, therefore, I urge you, and this is a plural you. It's directed at the entire community. Think of it as a y'all for us Southern folks. Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy or the story he's been laying out, the story of grace, redemption, and rescue has culminated in Christ's resurrection. I urge you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Paul uses this language to set up the rest of this chapter, this language of sacrifice and worship that he uses to describe the life of the Christian community living together in the world. And this would have hit home in some really intense ways for his audience. First, in the Old Testament, worshiping the God of Israel was a privilege given to and through Israel alone. But Paul makes it clear, if Christ's story is true, then the worship of God is now available for everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. Which, in this divided church along ethnic and religious lines, makes it clear from the start, in this story, all of you equally are invited and called to take part in the worship of God together as one community. That is your calling, that is your witness in the world. Second, the focus on sacrifice, though alien to us in the modern world, was a central and known and symbolic expression of worship. It was a way and a tool of honoring God in the Old Testament. It was used to reconcile broken relationships between God and people and between people and each other, a way of making amends and showing recompense. It was a way of giving thanks. It was a way of making commitments. It was a way of taking part in celebrations or festivals that remembered and retold the story of God's people and their relationship with God. Thus, sacrifice. Giving something, an animal or food or anything otherwise, fully to God showed honor, obedience, and love to God for all he's done. But here's the thing. A sacrifice, animal or food, has to die or go away, does it not? That's fundamentally how sacrifice works. And yet, look at what Paul says here. He says, in light of this story of God's grace, we are called to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. And this statement is charged with language that would be profound to his audience. 
offer to God as a sacrifice your bodies, which here means our complete person that exists in time and space here and now. It is all of us physically, behaviorally, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Our will, our purpose, everything is to be given to God in this new sacrificial worship. But in this worship, the sacrifice or us doesn't die physically. Instead, we live on beyond the point of laying ourselves down in a new transformed way. The theologian N.T. Wright summarizes it this way. Paul envisions the sacrifices in question as being physical, indeed animal. But the animals are human and they are not to be ritually slaughtered, but rather presented to God still alive. What are to be presented are the bodies of Christian worshipers and the primary worship that Paul envisions is the obedience of the whole person to the commands that follow. This is why Paul says people who take part in this worship and sacrifice become holy or set apart in how they exist in the world for a divine purpose. And it's how they become pleasing to God, something that brings joy to him and how it exists in the world. For Paul, this is how we truly worship and respond to the God of the Christ story by together becoming a people that live in the world in a radically new, self-sacrificial and redemptive way, that we worship God by becoming to others in the world the very evidence of the truth of his story of Christ and resurrection. This is the great, therefore, that kicks off Romans 12, a chapter where Paul is going to use all he's got to urge this fractured community to live out Christ's story and to be what they were created to be, to truly be the church, worshiping God in the way that his character, his grace, his story calls for through how we live and reflect him together in the world. That's why for the next seven weeks, we are going to dive into Roman 12 in this series. We're going to approach it with two main goals. First, we're going to go verse by verse through this dense chapter, this powerful chapter, looking at each verse as almost a hyperlink, a way of jumping to and recalling stories and themes that actually cover the entire biblical narrative. Each part of this chapter points to a story and a therefore that's baked into it about who God is and what we have to do in response to who he is, how we're called to live in the world. But we're also going to approach it with the second goal. We are going to let each section of Romans 12 and each therefore speak to us at E3 right now as a church in the world, to our values as a community. Namely, the seven core values, the seven core therefores that we at E3 believe reflect both who we are as a community and who we desire to be as a community. Seven core values that we at E3 believe direct us in offering our community as a living sacrifice by honoring the great therefore of God's story. Seven core values that define the how of our life together that is inseparable from our belief in Christ and his story. 
values that we will dive into one at a time, verse by verse, story by story, theme by theme, week by week. But for now, I just want to sit with these seven values together. I want to get them on our minds as we head into this journey of remembering who we are, what our story is about, and how we live together in the world. You see, we at E3, our if is clear, and our then needs to become clear too. At E3, we believe that this story of Christ and his resurrection and the God behind it is true, and that God's spirit is moving among, in, and through us. Therefore, we embrace a life of perpetual growth. We believe that the emphasis of the spiritual life is on the process of becoming more like Jesus in every aspect of our lives. God is calling all of us at all times to be moving towards his vision for our lives as exemplified by the model of Jesus Christ. So we never stop growing in this life. Second, therefore, we maintain a posture of humility. Jesus teaches us that our highest ambition is to serve others and think of others first and ourselves second. So in that vein, we avoid judgment, always acknowledging our own brokenness and our own need for grace, showing respect to other people around us in their experiences and never assuming inherently that our experience is better or greater than theirs. Third, therefore, we embrace and live out a life of intentional design. God does not call us to a life of passivity, but rather one of co-creation with him to build his kingdom alongside him on earth as it is in heaven, here and now. So we must strive to steward the gifts God has given us, our time, our talents, our treasures as a community, and to use them intentionally for the good of all people and all others. Four, therefore, we trust God to lead, provide for, and guide us. And we trust each other to bring their best to the community. Trust. Jesus' teaching is not about avoiding pain or discomfort or ill fortune. It's about how we respond when those things inevitably arise. Thus, to trust God is to rely on his promise that all things, no matter what, and all people can be healed, can be redeemed, can be made right in his work of new creation and resurrection. Thus, we release our desire to attempt to control everything and place our faith in his leading and teachings. Five, therefore, we choose to make room for others. God does not lead us into a life of transformation so we can keep it for ourselves. If we did that, it would actually lose its goodness. Therefore, our posture should always be oriented outwards inviting and welcoming all people, acknowledging and accepting the journeys of others, and generously sharing all we've been given with them. Six, therefore, we live authentic lives to ourselves and to others. The life Christ calls us to is incompatible 
with false posturing in the story of God. We must be unafraid of brokenness in ourselves or others because to fear and hide from brokenness only fosters its stranglehold over our lives. Thus, authenticity is a crucial, crucial thing for the healing and the growth that God wants for us, that God calls us to. So we aim to always present ourselves as honestly and think about ourselves as honestly as we know how. Authenticity. And seven, this last value we'll explore. Therefore, we experience and display grace in all things. Grace or unmerited favor flows through everything we are and do. Grace is not only how we find forgiveness in and through and from Christ, it also describes and defines how we should view all life in the story of God as an un merited, undeserved gift. These are our values at E3. These are what we are going to explore and own as a community in this next season. We will look at each one deeply. We will hear from E3ers about what each means to them. And above all, we will sit with how to live these out as Element Church together as a community that claims Christ's story is true. So, as we move into this season, I challenge all of us to dive into these values. Dive into the ones that like new words we've never heard before, but we're drawn to. The ones that we need to learn for the first time, that we need to actually overuse for the first time. The ones that we need to practice so we can eventually grow to understand and apply them correctly. Dive into them. Dive into the ones that you are living out or you see our community living out well, but you haven't shared with others. Share them with the world. Be an example of them to a world that needs them. And lastly, dive into the ones that quite frankly we've forgotten or ignored, that we need to remember and be held accountable to in love and grace by our brothers and sisters so we can live into our calling as the people of God. Let these speak to you in this season and ask God for one thing, to help us become a living sacrifice, to help us live more as a community like the God who gave us a story that is worthy of all of us, to help us become a pocket of good news and new creation, and resurrection, and new life, and the glory of our God in this world. Let us take seriously the great therefore of our faith together as one body, as one church. The great therefore of how we live together. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good. You are so merciful. I thank you for your story. I thank you for your grace and your love. I thank you for the fact that it's freely given, that it's not earned, that it raises to life people who are once dead like me. Above all, God, though, for this season, I pray that you would give me the courage and the strength and your spirit and the ability to live into that story, to respond to that story, to become like you 
like your son and how I live with the people around me and how I reflect you to a world that needs you. Help me and all of us at E3 remember the great therefore of our faith. Help us respond as you've called us to. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. And we pray all this in your holy name.